The following Agio-supported podcast is intended for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice. Please speak with your healthcare professional before making any treatment decisions. The guests on today's show were paid to participate in this podcast. Welcome to ThalPals, the Alpha Beta Revolution. Whether you're a thalassemia patient, a caregiver, a partner, or provider, this podcast is meant for you. I'm your host, Dr. Kevin Kuo. And I'm your co-host, Larice Levine. The Alpha Beta Revolution will strive to provide listeners with critical education, the latest scientific updates, voices from the greater global community of people who are impacted by thalassemia. Our guest today episode is Dr. Nika Capellini. It's really amazing to have Dr. Capellini to be on our podcast. We wanted her to be in New Orleans. Unfortunately, she couldn't make it. And to me, Dr. Capellini is truly the mother of thalassemia, at least within the academic community. For those of us who are thalassemia treatment providers in this generation, we really look up to her because to me, she was the one who has started it all. She was the one who's brought to the world the attention the complications and the plight of people who are suffering from thalassemia. And then later on, of course, she was every step of the way in the development of treatment for thalassemia, ranging from initially with Desferol and with different Cyrox, and then, of course, most recently in Luspartacepin and gene therapy. I couldn't agree more, Dr. Quo. As a patient, Dr. Capellini is a superheroine and has dedicated her whole life and career to thalassemia and the patients in the community. And the gratitude I feel to her for her contributions are immense. And probably one of the reasons I'm doing this podcast with you and still here. So I'm starstruck and super, super excited for this interview. Nika, I am so pleased to have you on Thal Pals, the Alpha Beta Revolution podcast today. Me and Larisse are just super excited to have you, and we're so sorry that we missed you in uh, New Orleans. Yeah, thank you, Kevin. Uh, it's a pleasure for me to join you, and unfortunately, I couldn't come to Coolidge, although I was planning to come, because I was involved in a HEMA presentation and discussion for Luspartacep registration for NTDT patients. But it's a pleasure to be with you, of course, today. Thank you so much for taking the time, Dr. Capolini. I was super excited that we were going to be able to sit down with you in New Orleans and then slightly crushed when we didn't see you. But as a patient, I feel like I'm sitting with a live superheroine because I was telling my husband last night that he would have to help our son with the morning routine because I was sitting down with the mother of thalassemia. You have devoted your whole life to thalassemia and your patients and the community and You've seen seen everything from the beginning and the evolution of it. So just thank you, thank you, thank you for being with us today. I'm so excited. And uh, I apologize for not being with you in person, but hopefully next year so we may have uh, other opportunities. Uh, and it's really a pleasure to share as I can, my experience with you and with patients. So for those who are listening to the podcast right now, you must have heard of Professor Capellini's name. If you haven't, you need to Google her because at least to clinicians like me, we consider Nika to be the mother of thalassemia. 
She has been there from the beginning describing thalassemia when no one was taking care of these patients, describing the complications, things that can happen. And she was every step at every pivotal trial that advanced the care of thalassemia. And if you Google her, you're going to see that she has publications in New England Journal of Medicine, in Lancet, and JAMA. You'll find that almost every drug that you use, she had a hand in developing it. For example, the Ferrocyrox, the publication in Blood in 2006, when it was still called ICL 670. I don't know if any one of you who are listening, probably you were involved in those trials. That's what it was called. Then later on, of course, the Dr. Capellini's pivotal role in the BELIEVE trial of loose particep in the transfusion-dependent thalassemia that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2020. This was followed by BEYOND, the non-transfusion-dependent thalassemic study. And most recently, of course, Professor Capellini has been involved in a number of gene therapy studies that has also been published. So we are very grateful to have you today. But Kevin, it's just a question of age. I think I'm quite fortunate, although I'm not fortunate to be old, but I'm very fortunate because I had the opportunity to start this uh, thalassemia journey back on the late 60s when I was just finishing my medical school and I was dealing with some thalassemia patients who were dying, unfortunately, and I was very much touched for that. And I was really motivated to follow this patient and try to understand better on the pathophysiology and possibly the treatment of this disease. So I have to thank my mentor. I have to thank... Patients who allowed to go further and to do the small thing I did. Nika, it's great that you brought up the beginning. Tell us how it was from a physician's perspective in terms of the treatment for thalassemia at that time and also the management and the complications that you saw. You know, when I started, actually, just to let you know, I am an internist, so I'm a physician of adult patients. But at that time, at the end, beginning of 70, I started to see in internal medicine ward patients, adult or young adult patients, with severe anemia and complications due to severe anemia. And I started to be focused on that, and they resulted to be patients affected by, at that time, thalassemia intermedia, or even non-hemolytic and non-sferocytic anemia. So I started to look at these patients, and this brings me to the pediatric unit, where the most severe patients with thalassemia were in care. And at that time, I remember that transfusion was already in place, but the decision to transfuse the patient was mainly based on the level of hemoglobin drop. So when the hemoglobin dropped below 8, below 7, or something like that, patients were transfused. But without a regular scheme, without a regular blood transfusion timetable. Then some study or some data were made available suggesting that suppressing the bone marrow activity 
with a more regular transfusion regimen that was much better for the quality of life of the patient. So beginning of end of 70, beginning of 80, hypertransfusion regimen started trying to keep the hemoglobin level above 12 or even more. And of course, there was some advantages, but serious disadvantages, which were related to the iron overload. And I remember that the main reason of that for children or young or adolescents was the heart failure due to iron overload. And I was directly dealing with the initial treatment uh, with the iron chelation with desferioxamine. At the beginning, desferioxamine, which was discovered by chance, as you know, because was under evaluation as an antibiotic, and in vitro it came out to be an iron chelator. So at the very beginning, as soon as this news was made available, desferioxamine was given intramuscularly. And I did that in some patients, causing, of course, a poor efficacy and a big burden for the patients. Then there was a paper, I don't remember the name now, but from a guy from Oxford who demonstrated that desferioxamine was gaseous if it was given subcutaneously for more many hours a day. So we started doing that, and that was, I should say, 80, late 70, beginning of 80, and there was an improvement. But the adherence of patients was very difficult. We had to convince patients and parents, because parents were very much afraid about that. So just to make the long story short, in Italy, I have to say that for me, important to pay merit to some Italian pediatrician, such as Professor Bullo, Professor Masera, Professor Cao, who at that time focus on iron chelation, and they establish continuous treatment with the sferioxamine by cutaneous infusion. There was another concern at one point. There was over chelation. And in fact, if we look back at those patients of that time, some of them have clear feature of over chelation. They have a short trunk, long legs, because they were overchelated with the sferioxamine, and they had some bone problem. So at that point, what was my dream? My dream was to find a good balance between blood transfusion and iron chelation, and possibly to find an alternative way to perform iron chelation. And I start to push several companies to look for oral iron chelator. And that's the story start later on with the Ferazirox, as you mentioned. And that, from my point of view, was probably a very, very important achievement in the thalassemia history. That was really a step forward. So that was more or less the beginning. In the meantime, I was also focusing on thalassemia intermediate, starting to see what was wrong or what was good with them. And I remember that, and now I say mea culpa, 
uh, at that time, I used to say to thalassemia intermediate patients, you are lucky because you are doing better than a thalassemia major, than a severe form. You don't require regular blood transfusion. Thus, you don't require regular chelation. And I was saying that at that time. Then, step by step, I learned myself that was not the right way to deal with these patients because after years and after, unfortunately, seeing complications in these patients, we learned that having a chronic Persistent anemia is not good for the patients, particularly this kind of anemia, which is based on ineffective erythropoiesis. And not chelating these patients is another mistake because they absorb a lot of iron. So I was trying to follow and to identify something better for thalassemia major, but I tried to learn a bit more on pathophysiology of thalassemia intermedia. And that's why I say now we have to care of these patients because they need to be treated. That's more or less the longer story. But of course, now the, the scenario is open and I'm so glad for the patients. I'm almost on my retirement, but I want to keep looking at the progresses because I want to see how these patients may actually improve their life thanks to the new treatment. Agios is a biopharmaceutical company that's fueled by connections with patient communities, healthcare professionals, partners, and each other. Building on these connections and the company's unmatched leadership in the field of cellular metabolism, Agios is pioneering therapies of genetically defined diseases, a broad group of rare and more common diseases that are typically severe and life-threatening. Near term, Agios is focusing on hemolytic and acquired anemias, including thalassemia, pyruvate kinase, or PK deficiency, and sickle cell disease. To learn more, visit agios.com. That's A-G-I-O-S dot com. Just to go a little further back, because you were in medical school in the 60s, and I know that thalassemia existed before that. Do you know, I know in, you know, the United States, it was discovered in the 20s by Dr. Thomas Cooley, but it was in the Mediterranean prior to that. So do you know that part of the history, Dr. Capolini? In Italy, where thalassemia was quite common, particularly in some part of the country, in the island, the Sardinia and Sicily, and along the south coast of the, the south part of Italy. And uh, if you, I mean, it will be nice to comment why that, you know, that those uh, were area of endemic malaria. And malaria was a natural selection of the thalassemia defects. So patients, subjects, not patients, subjects, carrier a mutation in the globin gene, they survive to malaria compared to the normal population. So that was a natural selection. In Italy, already back to the 1890s or 18th century, some Italian hematologists were describing children 
with a strange type of anemia of different severities. And I have in my record the picture of these children. And because the doctors who described were Rietti, Greppi, and Micheli, these are three family names, we used to name, when I was a student, we used to name those anemia as anemia of Rietti Greppi. Then in 1925, as you mentioned, Dr. Cooley described an anemia in children from immigrants to the States, and particularly from Greece, from Italy, from other Mediterranean countries. And his first description was the anemia which uh, arrived from the sea. That was the way to describe this anemia. And it took a while to understand that this form of anemia was, first of all, hereditary, because there was a family transmission of this anemia. And also for this observation, a great contribution was given by Two Italian doctors were not really very much known. I knew both of them. The lady, she passed away at the age of almost 100 years, a few years ago, Ida Bianco. What they did, Silvestrone Bianco, was to do a screening in the South and the island population immediately after the Second World War, just doing a smear, a peripheral smear. And they observed that, first of all, this was a microcytic anemia, and second, it was genetically transmitted. And they realized that was a trait, because they found usually the microcytic anemia mild in the parents, and then they could find more severe in the children. That was an important step. But the polling in 1946 described the structure of the hemoglobin. And it was realized that hemoglobin, which is an essential element for the human being because it is the oxygen delivered protein into the red cells, was composed by two different globin chain named alpha-globin chain and beta-globin chain. And this globin chain to produce, to have normal hemoglobin, should be very well balanced and equal alpha and beta. They also found other globin components during, for example, fetal period or immediately after birth, the so-called hemoglobin F. But the adult hemoglobin was composed by alpha and beta. And after this observation, of course, some laboratory techniques were implemented, particularly the possibility of measuring the alpha and beta production, and that was uh, set up in Oxford by the group of David Wetherall and John Clegg, and they established that alpha or beta thalassemia were due to an impaired ratio between alpha and beta. So beta thalassemia are those where the beta globin production is reduced or even absent. 
the same for alpha thalassemia. But there is a difference between these two conditions because, of course, the globin production is controlled by genes. And the beta-globin production is controlled by two genes, one from each parent. The alpha-globin genes are controlled by four alpha genes, two from each parent. And although are four, they produce the same amount of the beta-globin. So you may understand that from the clinical point of view is in some way easier to have beta-thalassemia because it's sufficient to have two genes affected. Whereas for alpha-thalassemia, you may have different possibilities because you may have one gene affected out of four, two genes affected out of four, three genes affected of four. Of course, if you have four alpha gene affected, this is really fatal because you cannot produce any alpha globin chain and usually the fetus die intrauterine so is the so-called fetal eye drops. But the other possibility, which may arise from a single mutation or two mutations or so on, range, let's say, from a type of thalassemia intermedia, known as hemoglobin H disease, to different anemia, microcytic anemia in carrier, which is usually quite well tolerated. For this reason, and I think it's important to underline, for this reason, a lot of attention during past uh, 40 years was mainly focused on beta thalassemia. And the alpha thalassemia patients were quite neglected. And Kevin, you may add something to that because usually they were not considered as clinically relevant, excluding those who did not survive after birth. So there was poor attention. But now we are really realizing that patients with hemoglobin H disease may have quite a wide spectrum of phenotypes. Some are quite severe and increasing in age, they definitely require more attention and adequate treatment. You want to say, to add something, Kevin, to that? Because I think it's important. I completely agree with you, Nika. I feel like where we are with the hemoglobin H right now, with the alpha thalassemia, is similar to how we were treating our NTDT, our beta NTDT patients in the 70s and 80s. You described so well in terms of how you, with the patients, were discovering that there are a number of complications that can happen that were not previously realized, and that hemoglobin is not the determining feature of complication. Yes, and I tell you, I mean, we thought, for example, that in the Mediterranean area, the alpha mutation were rare and beta mutation more frequent, whereas the alpha mutation were more frequent in the Southeast Asia, there are countries such as Thailand, for example, where more than 20% of the population are carrier of 
with alpha mutation. So there is even frequent to have uh, fetal eye drops because of potential combination of parents, each of them carrying two mutations. But this, let's say, epidemiological view, which was commonly accepted in the past, nowadays uh, is not really, let's say, acceptable for several reasons. First of all, due to the recent migration from Southeast Asia, Middle East, and so on. But also, as soon as we start to be more careful on identifying the alpha carrier, because, you know, very often an alpha carrier can be misdiagnosed as affected by an iron deficiency anemia because this subject presents with a mild, moderate microcytic anemia. They don't have, let's say, marker in, in hemoglobin electrophoresis which could help in diagnosis, such as increase of hemoglobin A2, for example, in beta thalassemia. In alpha thalassemia, the electrophoresis of hemoglobin can be normal or at least having a mild decrease of hemoglobin A2, but it wasn't posed attention on that. Now that we are more careful we are identifying a lot of carrier and a large number of patients affected by hemoglobin H, as Kevin said, similar to the mild or moderate NTDT patients, beta thalassemia intermediate. What is a flag to my, let's say, clinical experience in these patients is that they tend to have a more hemolytic component compared to beta thalassemia. They usually have an increase of bilirubin, they may have an increase retics and LDH, and particularly they tend to have splenomegaly. Thank you, Nika. The literature reads that trait carriers, whether it's alpha or beta, don't have symptoms. But I moderate two Facebook groups that are 10,000 people or more, and trait carriers promise that they have symptoms, whether it be dizziness or fatigue or headaches. What do you think, Dr. Capolini, about that? Uh, you know, usually a carrier gets used to have uh, an hemoglobin level a little bit below the normal value. And we are used to say that's well-compensated status. Nevertheless, with increasing age or even upon the type of lifestyle that the patient has, they may feel more tired, they have more fatigue. And I was never able to really prove what was the reason. But very often, this subject come to the GP or to the hematology expert during the season changes, particularly in spring or summertime, they complain about their reduced hemoglobin level. And what I usually suggest to them is to supplement with folic acid, maybe for one month, or and that is helpful in improving the, let's say, well-being. 
The other uh, potential complication they may have is the bladder stones. I saw in several, especially female, but also males, in the third, fourth decade of life, the presence of micro bladder stones, and that's due to the mild hemolytic component. Again, there are factors, so-called modifier factors. If they are combined to being a carrier, they may let's say, worsen a big clinical picture. For example, if a subject is carrier of Gilbert syndrome, which is a syndrome characterized by an increase of bilirubin, they may have some jaundice due to the combination. Or, for example, in the Caucasian population where the hemochromatosis gene, so the gene which increased the iron absorption, is uh, highly present. If a carrier of thalassemia is also a carrier of NHFE gene, so the hemochromatosis gene, they may have some iron overload. So is it important when evaluating a carrier to take in if something is out of the box, so is not really justifying the carrier status, is important to look for other modifier factors. Thank you. That's interesting, for sure. Thanks, Nika. So, Nika, I'm just going to switch gears right now, and I'm hoping that uh, you can answer a few questions that I'm about to ask in Italian so that we can reach out to our Italian audiences. Yeah, we'll be a pre- Wonderful. The first question is, can you tell the audience who you are? Mi chiamo uh, Maria Domenica Cappellini. Mi conoscono però come Nica, Nica Cappellini, sono professore di medicina interna all'Università degli Studi di Milano e per oltre 40 anni ho diretto il centro delle malattie rare eh, presso la Fondazione Cagranda Policlinico ob- occupandomi prevalentemente di emoglobinopatie. Thank you. And then the second question is, can you describe to the audience why you've been so passionate in dedicating your career to helping patients with thalassemia? Uh, io mi sono laureata in medicina a Milano e, um, in medici- e ho fatto la specialità poi sia di ematologia che di medicina interna. Ma agli inizi proprio del mio percorso assistenziale ho avuto modo di uh, incontrare in ambito internistico, quindi soggetti giovani e adulti, alcuni pazienti con forme di anemia ereditaria che prendevano il nome di anemie emolitiche non sferocitiche, poi talassemie intermedie e quindi ho cominciato ad interessarmi al problema delle talassemie Per questo motivo ho passato subito dopo la laurea un breve periodo a Leiden in Olanda dove un genetista italiano si occupava di talassemie e poi al mio rientro eh, ho stabilito un rapporto con i pediatri, in particolare col professor Masera e il professor Vullo che in Italia alla fine degli anni 70 si occupavano di pazienti affetti da talassemia e allora mi colpì moltissimo 
il fatto che purtroppo di talassemia, delle forme gravi di talassemia, si moriva entro i 20 anni eh, di vita. Quindi da allora eh, immediatamente scattò in me la voglia, il desiderio di capire di più la storia e i meccanismi patologici della talassemia ai fini di cercare di migliorare la terapia e migliorare la sopravvivenza di questi pazienti. E da lì progressivamente ho concentrato la mia ricerca, poi andando a Oxford dal professor Wederol per un breve periodo negli anni Ottanta, ma soprattutto eh, focalizzando la mia attenzione alla cura dei pazienti talassemici. Mille grazie, dottoressa Capellini. Your Italian is perfect. Oh, gosh, no, <laughs> hardly. So, are there any questions you want to ask Loris? Dr. Capellini, will you tell us why you're so passionate about thalassemia and your hopes for the community? Well, you know, when I graduated in medicine, back to many, many years ago. I graduated in uh, internal medicine and I was working in an adult uh, world. And uh, at that time, uh, I met a couple of patients, young adults, affected by, let's say, moderate to severe anemia, which was defined as uh, hemolytic non-ferrocytic anemia. So I was curious for that and I started to learn uh, a bit about uh, that and it came out uh, that uh, these uh, were form of thalassemia. At that time I didn't know what thalassemia was, so I started to study and I, I went to Leiden in Netherlands where an Italian genetician, Professor Bernini, was uh, doing some work on hemoglobin. So i became interested on hemoglobin and when I came back, I established a connection with my colleague pediatrician in Milan and in Ferrara, Professor Masera, Professor Vullo, who were taking care of thalassemia children. And I was very much impressed and very much touched by the fact that these uh, children were dying at most within the second decade of life. And that was uh, really, really painful to see these uh, children who couldn't have a normal life and they usually had a very demanding clinical situation. So I thought was my duty, my mission. I wanted to do something for these uh, children and I started to check uh, the literature and particularly I tried to establish a connection uh, with uh, those who know about thalassemia. So in uh, 1981 I went to Oxford where the real father of thalassemia was there, Professor Wederon. I spent almost two years trying to learn and to do in globin chain synthesis and so on. And when uh, I came back, uh, I kept taking care of uh, 
young adults and uh, even children uh, with thalassemia. At that time, there was uh, also a, an important, well, that was more around the 90s, but the transition from the pediatric to young adult age, because when we became able to keep these patients surviving uh, a little bit longer, not as now, but they were not treated by pediatricians, they were not treated by adults, so I also invested a lot on this transition phase. But anyway, I was touched back to the 70s, and I had in my heart the dream of doing something for uh, for this patient. I don't know if I did or not, but definitely I saw some progression and things are changing. And now I'm happy to say that I feel a grandma or several children from my thalassemia patients. So I have several thalassemia girls, but even boys, who have their own family, they have children. So I have Beside my two real grandchildren, I have a lot of, I'm surrounded by a large number of grandchildren from my patients. I'm very touched. And as a patient at 50, I will say you have made a significant, huge difference, more than you'll probably ever realize. So thank you. Thank you for dedicating your whole career and life to I can also add something more, which is the partnership with patients. That is another important step, and you are an example. I mean, actually, some achievements were reached thanks to the relationship and understanding between physician and patient. And that, for me, was extremely important. I remember also that I was uh, with some patients, sometimes I was tough, particularly at the beginning with the iron chelation with the spherioxamine. I was quite tough with uh, some of them. But then they were useful for other patients uh, to understand uh, how important it was to do the iron kill. So there are a lot of, let's say, complicity between physician and patient that also contribute to achieve some, some results. Yeah, uh, hematologists are a special breed. And I think thalassemia is a way of life more than a profession or a disease from us. It's beyond that. Absolutely. Nika, I think it's time for us to wrap up as we're close to the hour. On behalf of the audience, as well as uh, Luis and I, we would love to thank you for coming here today to speak with us, to tell you about your journey, and also to describe the journey of thalassemia in, since the beginning. And we really appreciate all the advice and all the wise words you have given us. So thank you very much, Professor Capellini. Mille grazie, Professoressa Capellini. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you very much. Thank you, Loris. Uh, it's a pleasure for me. And I hope actually that the future for thalassemia may further improve. I'm sure it will be. And uh, the young physicians such as uh, Kevin and uh, other colleagues uh, will uh, 
take over and continue to the improvement of survival, quality of life. I want to see thalassemia living as much as possible as normal people. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for this honor, Dr. Kaplan. That's all for today's episode. Again, I'm your host, Dr. Kevin Quo, and I'd like to personally thank you for listening to Thou Pals, The Alphabet Revolution. Don't forget to hit that follow button in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. Share the show with members of the thalassemia community. Thou Pals, The Alphabet Revolution is made possible by Agios Pharmaceuticals, Inc. Visit agios.com to learn more. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Thou Pals, The Alpha Beta Revolution. Bye, everybody.